Welcome to the Let's Get Real podcast with Justin and Trisha Davis. Honest conversations about life, love, and leadership. So welcome. What is up, everyone? Welcome to the Let's Get Real podcast with Justin and Trisha Davis. It is episode 18, and today we are joined by Davey and Christy Blackburn. They are the founders of Nothing Is Wasted Ministries. Uh, they are podcasters, and Davey's a speaker, uh, but they are authentic, they are real, and they are dear friends of ours. And we're so grateful for how they share their story. It is painful, tragic, it is beautiful and amazing, and most importantly, it is redemptive, and it's going to point your heart to Jesus, and I can't wait for you to hear their story. Before we dive into uh, our podcast today, I want to remind you of the Refinus Weekend Experience. It is coming up July the 7th through the 9th here in Indianapolis, Indiana. We want to invite you to a weekend to restore your heart and the heart of your marriage, and Guys, we have 12 spots available. Uh, four of those have already been registered, so that means we have eight spots available. There is an early bird registration discount that you can get through the end of May, and that code for registration is the word early bird, all one word. I know it's creative. You can go to refineus.org slash weekend. You can find all the information out about that weekend. You can register. It includes all of your meals. It includes snacks, all the content, Friday night, Saturday morning. Uh, we dismiss around two o'clock on Saturday for a date night uh, for you and your spouse. And then we, we have breakfast together on Sunday before everyone heads home. And uh, you can go to refineus.org slash weekend to get more information. You can watch a video from uh, some former uh, alumni of the weekend to hear about their experience. We'd love to have you join us July 7th through the 9th uh, for the Refinus Weekend Experience. Well, without any further delay, welcome to episode 18 of the Let's Get Real podcast. And guys, thank you so much for being with us today. Totally yeah. appreciate it. Yes, thank you for having us. Yeah, it's an honor for us. Just kind of just give a little background of kind of who you are. Yeah, well, um, I was on staff at a church in South Carolina called New Spring Church, which I know you're, you're very familiar with. Um, a lot of the listeners might be familiar with it as well. And uh, we were youth pastors there. I thought we'd be there for the rest of our lives. I mean, it was a, it was a fast-growing church, lots of people coming to know Jesus. And we, we were living the kind of the dream ministry life. But then God began knocking on our hearts to do something that was uh, really quite scary, to be honest with you. And so we prayed against it for eight months. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, usually when you pray against something uh, that God wants you to do, it's like a Jonah kind of <laughs> circumstance, right? He, he gets you back on track. And so we uh, finally opened our hands up and, and said, all right, Lord, what are you calling us to do? And he, he really made it pretty clear, a very clear impression go to Indianapolis and plant a church. And so we, we, we moved to Indianapolis with the heart to start a church that would be life-giving, that would reach people who are far from God, disenfranchised by the faith, uh, who are hurting and broken, and really see um, transformation take place in people's lives and then in a city as well coming out of that. And so uh, you're right, we were. like One of our biggest things at the beginning was we're, we're for Indy. And it's it started out with a lot of just you know, let's do random acts of kindness and just see if people will reciprocate, you know, or, or pay it forward kind of idea. Um, uh, but, you know, after, after the tragedy, which I'll talk about in just a second, then 4ND became something even, even deeper on, on trying to transform, um, you know, some of the inner workings and systemic issues in our city. We, we moved here in the summer of 2015. 
Okay. Uh, yeah. You guys, was it? We were 2011. Okay. 2011. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So actually, to the date, November 11th, 2011 is when we moved from South Carolina to Indianapolis. And we actually like packed up a movie, man. That's a very important date because of, you know, what we'll talk about here in a second of what took place in our life. Yeah. Um, So November 11th, 2015 is kind of, you know, that date that you're talking about. Walk through that, that date and just kind of the circumstances that surrounded the most horrific days of your life. I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, this being a church planter that, you know, a lot of times when God calls you to plant a church, you feel like you're called to plant a forest, but dropped in the middle of a parking lot, right? You're just like, man, this is a lot of work. This is going to be, and it was for us for several years was just a lot of tilling up the soil and getting to know people. And, you know, we parachute dropped is what they call it. We didn't have already established networks. And so, you know, our, our marriage grew quite a bit during that time. Um, my marriage with Amanda, and there was a lot of um, tough things that we went through. But in the fall of 2015, we started kind of cresting, hitting that threshold of like, oh, this, this little church plant's going to actually survive. Wow. We were hitting over a hundred people every week for a few weeks in a row. And we're like, whoa, this is amazing. And, um, and then in November of, uh, of 2015, November 10th, it was a normal Tuesday morning, or at least it started out that way. And I, I woke up super early as I did normally on Tuesdays and uh, went to the gym. And I normally would shower at the gym and then go to Starbucks and start you know, early in on sermon writing. And this particular time, I, I came back from the gym because I forgot to, to pack a bag. I just didn't wake up early enough. I was kind of frustrated with myself. And so I didn't pack a bag. And I, I came back. And when I got back to my house, I walked through the door and um, I walked into what anybody's worst nightmare would be. And that is um, Amanda was lying face down on the living room floor in um, kind of a pool of blood. And um, long story short, what, what I found out later had happened, because in those moments, it's very traumatic and, and you don't, you know, you can't make any sense of anything um, when you're, when your wife's laying there on, on the floor unconscious, she was breathing uh, really laboriously, but she was not responding to me at all. And so uh, once we finally got her to the hospital and I was sitting in the, in the waiting room with, with Weston, our 15 month old. And so at the time we had a 15 month old and she was pregnant with our second. Um, I'm sitting in the waiting room thinking, okay, couple thoughts. One, something must have gone horrifically wrong with the pregnancy, but she's here at the hospital. She's going to be fine. And, and, and then too, like, you know, this kind of stuff doesn't happen to people like us, right? Like we're supposed to be under some kind of like special protection from God because we're doing his work. We're in ministry. Right. And, and, and not to mention that we like left this like comfortable dream job to come and plant this church. And so you know, I was a little bit in, in kind of some shock and denial of, okay, well, she's going to be fine. And then the doctors and, and investigators came back and began asking me a lot of questions. And when they had surmised that I had no idea what really was, had taken place, they, they told me that she had three bullet wounds in her and, um, and that it, the prognosis was not looking good, um, that they were going to monitor for the next few hours, do some tests. And, um, and then about, uh, right about 24 hours later, um, test came back that she, she was officially deceased. There was no brain activity. And so it was a, it was a really crazy long um, 24 hours with, with her family and everybody in the hospital there. But I'll be honest with you, it was a 24 hours that God showed up in some pretty powerful ways 
uh, to minister to us there. Um, so, uh, but November 2000, uh, November 11, 2015, I, I lost my wife and best friend and ministry partner. And, um, you know, it, it, it was certainly an understatement. It's an understatement to say that our life was upended. Right. Yeah. We think about how to even respond when someone shares um, a story of pain. Your story, though, is at a whole other level that you, you're you still, our listeners are probably just needing a moment to go, wait, did he just really say that he walked into a scene where his wife um, essentially had been murdered? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you respond with, but God. Mm-hmm. And for many people, honestly, Davey, they're like, there's no way. There's, there is no, but God, and this guy has got to be like, there's no way. But when your faith coincides with literally losing everything, it's like that rock bottom where if God isn't there, it is going to be my undoing. In, in those early hours of that all unfolding, you said that it was the time that God met you in such a, um, I don't know, I don't have the right descriptive word. Profound. Yeah, yeah, just that you said, but God, I think is in and of it enough. Um, if if you're able, could you explain that to someone who's listening, who doesn't even have a story that that they even can feel like that even comes close to your loss of, you know, Amanda, but that is desperately searching for God in their pain. What did that look like for you? Yeah, you know, Trish, I think that's a, a really good point. We could probably spend three or four hours talking about all of the sure. ways that God, not only I feel like prepared our family for something like this, but also um, met us in those moments. But I think that's the, that's the, the point. All of the processing and all of the searching for and all of the questions and all the doubts that, that I had in those moments have now in some ways not been completely buttoned up. They never will be, but now I can say some things that are really, you know, pithy phrases, you know, that, but they're true and, and they're, and they're anchored really deeply. But in those moments, I mean, there, everything runs through your mind. There's, there's doubt, there's questions, there's um, where are you, God? There's a sense of hopelessness. There's a sense of like um, complete and utter loneliness and yet what's so crazy is that God meets you in those darkest moments in profound ways that are so personal to you that like, even if I were to explain certain things and, and maybe some of your listeners have had these experiences, if I were to explain those personal things uh, of why that ministered to me, it might seem kind of trite to you, like really that ministered to you, you know what I mean? But it was like, wow, that's so personal. And that's the point. Our God is such a personal God that he like custom designs every way that he shows up for us, especially in those dark moments. You know, Psalm 23 talks about that we will not fear when we go through the, the valley of the shadow of death because he is with us. And I remember one particular moment we're sitting on, um, I was sitting with her sister on either side of the bed. And it happened to be the exact sides of the bed that we were sitting on when Amanda was bringing Weston into the world, right? When she was having Weston and, Amanda, and and her sister was over on one side and I'm on the other, we're holding her hand and she's giving birth. And it's just beautiful moment, right? Well, you know, fast forward 15 months later, we're sitting on the same sides of a hospital bed with her hooked up to all of these tubes and waiting for test results and feeling very hopeless. 
but we knew that if she if she was in any way conscious, if she could hear anything, she would want to listen to elevation worship because that's what she, that's what she used to go run, you know, jog with jog, jog to. And, you know, I mean, that was like her go-to when it came to just her quiet time. And so um, I put on the end of her bed uh, on our phone, Pandora elevation worship radio station. And you guys know how Pandora works, right? You, you hit play on a radio station and you have no idea what song's going to come first. It's very randomized. Right. The very first song that came up was the song, Nothing is Wasted by Elevation Worship. And it was like God just rushed into that moment and the lyrics ministered. I looked at her sister, Amber, and we just both started weeping because we knew God was telling us, hey, I'm here. I'm in this. This pain, I know this pain is great, but I will not waste it. Uh, the very next song after that was the song, Good, Good Father, and just his reminder that he's a, he's a good father. And I feel like it was one of those moments that like heaven touches earth and you just feel the presence of God so um, palpably that you're, it's unmistakable. And so we didn't know what that meant for the next you know several days and weeks and months to come. Um, things began to unfold that began to show us some of that stuff that God began to show us that, you know, even in moments where there's no explanation or reason, cause there's, it, this is so senseless. There is no explanation. You can't, you know, it, you, there's no, there's no, you can't rationally go, well, this is why this happened. You know, um, people like to say, well, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes it, it doesn't, you know, to be honest with you, sometimes there's no reason for it. Other than the fact that we live in this fallen, broken, sinful, horrific world. Yeah. But when there's no reason, you have to search for meaning. And, and God shows up in, in those places where there, is, um, where there is only you and him, and he brings meaning to it. And then he brings purpose out of it. So for the next several months, we begin to start seeing some of that, that meaning and that purpose unveiled. But the most important thing we needed in that moment was that he was with us. Mm. Man, that's so good. I, I just wrote that down. When when there is no reason, you have to search for meaning. I just um, that's just so rich. And and you, uh, the person that shares something that deep has been through something very deep, you know. And so, I want to I want to talk about kind of my perspective from an outsider, right? So we had just moved here that summer. Um, we had relationships in Indianapolis because we had planted a church here. Um, where we'd done a lot of ministry here but I had no connection to you mm -hmm. um, at that time. Uh, I had a connection to Aaron Brockett and everything kind of shifted to Trader's Point, right? And so um, we, we came to Amanda, Amanda's funeral, sat with Aaron um, during that service, such a moving service. But then the, the mode from an outsider's perspective, right? I know you're at the center of the storm, but what I experienced from the outside was people texting me from Nashville. Did you hear about the pastor that, killed his wife. Right. And so you're getting all these, all right. the suspicion, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all this stuff. And you go from this hundred person church plant to now you're in front of TV cameras and you're, you know, there's this not, it's, it's notoriety, but for the, all the, what no one would want that type of notoriety. And how did you process all of that at the same time? You know, you have this tremendous, tragic, unspeakable loss of your wife. And then you have these people who are, who have no connection to you that are suspicious of you. that are saying all of these slanderous things. Like, were you even able to reconcile any of that? How did you process that 
or did you just kind of tune it out if it was possible? Yeah. Um, at first it was tuned out for me, which I'm really grateful for. Um, you know, that church that would launched us from South Carolina, they sent a team on the ground immediately to really just help us. Um, there's probably not a better thing you can do to minister to somebody who's lost, you know, a, a loved one than just be there to help them, right? The ministry of presence. And, and they carried a ton of weight and responsibility and just, you know, they planned the entire funeral, but there was something that there were three people that were so very, very instrumental for me. Two of them were some of their care pastors that literally did not leave my side. Um, and then another one was this woman named Suzanne Swift. And she was basically like the, the PR director at New Spring at the time. And so she knew how to handle some of that like firestorm of a media frenzy that was taking place. And so she was fortunately like God's veil of grace to me to just, she, 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 she was the buffer. So I didn't hear a lot of that stuff at first, you know, and I was allowed to just kind of process and um, mourn and weep. And, um, and then they, and they took care of, you know, they'd say things like, Hey, what do you want for Amanda's funeral? And we'd say, well, this is what we want. If, if she was alive, this is what she would want. And so I was sheltered from it. But then I remember laying in bed one night and kind of sort like, um, scrolling through a bunch of comments and stuff from something and saw, I went kind of down a rabbit trail. It took me to a really bad place because I saw all of that, that stuff. And, you know, um, Justin, I know you guys probably speak Enneagram language, right? But I'm a three wing four, which means both of my types really hate feeling misunderstood. And so I felt extremely, not just misunderstood, but also just like to say salt in the wound would be like an understatement, you know, um, just felt like there was just, you know, knives being in spears being thrown at me for, you know, no reason. And I knew that, um, I knew that like, and this is really weird to say, but I, I, I recognized that there was something much bigger going on than just me and Amanda. I recognized there was something like in the spiritual that was happening in the sense of like, it felt like all of, like all of church world was kind of sitting on edge going like, how's this pastor going to respond to this? It, it, what he's been preaching, does he really believe it? Does he really, right? So I felt that a little bit of that weight and responsibility. So I really felt a responsibility to just acknowledge Jesus as much as I could, even if I didn't really know what I was saying sometimes. Yeah. So on news stations, I'm going like, you know, I'm just trying to share the gospel and tell people about Jesus while I'm in this state of shock, which yeah. probably in you some ways, those, you look back on those and go, I don't even remember saying something. I don't remember saying any of that. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, um, it, it's just really crazy how all of that stuff melds in together. And it just feels very confusing and yet clarifying all at the same time, you know? Um, and so I just remember feeling when I discovered that feeling very misunderstood and yeah. feeling uh, very hurt by that. Um, but I also, you know, had some good counsel to there, uh, with me to just help me navigate those feelings and, um, kind of recognize that, you know, at the end of the day, that is probably the most natural thing that people are going to think, you know? I mean, that's the most right. natural. It's like a Dateline episode. You know what I mean? It's like one of those things. But I, I just think, you know, now five year, five and a half years removed, it was almost like you had to heal from two different wounds. Yeah, exactly. You know, right. one, one was something that they were both, both neither you could, neither were your fault. You know, right. I think something right. we've re recognized when, um, again, it always feels like I have to quantify this because it feels very unfair for me to compare uh, anybody's story 
with somebody else's story, but yours especially, because it just just feels at a whole other level of, of heartache. Um, but sin will never make sense. No, yeah. And so people use other people to try and make it make sense. Yeah. And you were like the natural person to make it make sense. But right. the beauty of um, the life you are living now and how you have turned um, loss into legacy and making Amanda's um, the, who she was and the legacy of who she was meant to be remain is there was a turning point where you kind of drew a line in the sand to say, um, this will not be wasted. Right. Tell us about that. And then I'm going to get to your beautiful bride sitting next to you, Christy, because I feel like She's there so were part of that. Yeah. yeah, Christy's like just saying her name is like this healing bomb that everyone's like. <laughs> um, so, Christy, thank you for like just being on this part of the story. But I want to, we want to hear about that transition from when you made that decision um, to yeah. say, you know what, this this pain is going to have purpose. Well, there's two really instrumental stories in the Bible that helped me kind of come to that place, and both happen to be about the King David. So one is when he's on the run from Saul, right? So if you think about how betraying, you know, when, when Saul tries to kill David, I mean, Saul was a second father figure to David, right? I mean, he was like his mentor and, you know, close, his, his son is his close confidant and friend. And so you can imagine the feeling, the salt and the wound feelings that David had when Saul is throwing spears at him. And David has an opportunity if you you know you remember the story where he comes across Saul at his camp and then Saul's spear ironically is stuck in the ground next to his head. So here's Dave, David has this opportunity to not just defend himself but to throw a spear back. In fact, David's advisor is like, "Hey, I'll do it for you right now. Like, let me just just pin him to the ground." And and David goes, "No, we're not going to do that." And so what he does is he steals the spear. And he, he walks away and somebody told me when I, when I, when I like heard that for the first time, somebody phrased it like this for me. They said, David, when people throw spears at you, steal the spear and tell a better story. Oh. And that's the opportunity that every one of us have in any moment of offense, in any moment where we feel kind of that salt in the wound or misunderstood is that we have an opportunity to tell a better story. And not only do we have an opportunity to tell a better story, we have an opportunity to live out a better story. And we get to determine that. We get to kind of step back from our own story. And instead of being a character in the story, we get to partner with the author of the story to write a better story. And that's what redemption is all about. I mean, God's always inviting us into redemption stories, but he's saying, you got to play a part in this. And so the other story of David that really was impactful for me was when he was coming back to his camp. And um, when he got back to his camp from this, you know, um, war campaign, all of his, all of the, his, he and his men's wives and children were stolen. And the first thing that he asked for is he asked for the linen ephod, which is, you know, we also know the linen ephod is the garment of praise. It's what the priests would put on when they would go and when it, they would go and meet with God. And he he asked in this tragic moment where his wife is stolen. The first thing I would have asked for a sword, you know, he asked for a linen ephod. And the, I, there's another moment in David's life where he asked for a linen ephod, and that was when he was marching triumphantly into the city after another war campaign where he was wearing the linen ephod, right? Remember the whole old song that's like, 
I will be even more undignified than this. You know that, right? And so she's dancing in a linen ephod. So in a triumphant moment and tragic moment, both, he asked for the garment of praise. And here, here's, what, here's how that ministered to me. In, in both of those seasons, he, he turned to the Lord first and said, okay, you give and take away. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to praise you. Um, and, then, and then he asked God, what should I do? And God's response was, go take them back. Go take them back. And so here's God inviting David into a story to go and take back his story. And that has been probably the most instrumental thing for me to say, we get to choose whether or not, no matter what takes place in our life, we get to choose whether or not we're going to respond with contempt and bitterness and hatred and anger and just allow that to continue to fester inside of us and eventually destroy us, or if we're going to tell a better story and we're going to live a better story. And so um, that just kind of became my MO was like, no, absolutely. Was it difficult? Oh my gosh. Yes. Was there some, sometimes that I was like, I don't want to do this. I want to throw in the towel. This just is, seems like an uphill battle. 100%. There's always going to be that. You're always going to face that kind of opposition because we have a very real enemy who doesn't want you to participate with God in taking back your story. That's for sure. He wants to keep you neutralized and paralyzed. And so um, that's kind of where, you know, then we, we just decided, no, we're going we're gonna to do this. And the way that we do this is we're going to help other people to respond in their trauma, tragedy, and major life transition, help them to understand that they can take back their story. And there's something so powerful and healing and cathartic about turning your eyes away from your own pain and helping other people in their pain. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I 100% agree with that. Christy, you have this different journey, but a parallel journey of coming out of a difficult situation, coming out of things that um, other people would have made you bit, would have made bitter. You could have chosen, you know, to, to walk away from the Lord. Talk about your journey before you met Davey and just kind of some of the things that you went through that you needed God to redeem to prepare you for what you're doing now. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I was a stereotypical preacher's kid, which that can mean one of two things that you were a partier or you were just, you know, wearing the long skirts and in church every day. And so I was unfortunately the partier, but um, I grew up with my dad um, as a senior pastor of a church. And also my grandpa was a senior pastor of a church. So I, basically I was always in the church world, but it was very confusing for me because the, the biggest difference was when my dad would be in public, we were this picture perfect family. But then when we were in our house, it felt like hell basically. And so it always confused me of what does this look like actually? Like, how am I supposed to be? Um, what's my foundation in Christ? What does God look like? And so there was a huge reason for this. I mean, my dad grew up in a very physically abusive household. He grew up in a very impoverished family. So he came out of it just trying to work out, making something out of nothing. And he tried to live a better life with us. And all of a sudden, when his grand, when my grandma, his mom was on, on her deathbed, um, he found out that his dad who abused him his whole life, who did not love him, actually was not his real dad. And she wouldn't tell him that either, like who his dad was. And so he finally realized like, wow, my foundation with God was never there. Like, um, it was just a very hard for him to understand even how to be a father to us. So I grew up with a dad who was pretty emotionally abusive to us and sometimes physically abusive. And so that set my foundation with God in a very odd way. And so, um, Christy, if you could like have a descriptive word of who you thought God was in that 
in that tension of having a pastor as a dad and then living one life in public, another life in pro- private? What What was your perception of God in that? For me, I thought he was some kind of narcissistic puppet master that we had to be perfect to get into heaven and that he just told you what to do. And then he used you for his glory and his kingdom. And I was fully on board with that because that's how I grew up. I'm like, well, I'll be perfect. I'll have the checklist to get into heaven. And there we go. And, you know, I couldn't live up to that. Nobody can live up to that. And so throughout the years, I just had trial and trauma that came my way. And um, it brought me to my knees and realized the need for a savior who takes all of those burdens from you, who says, you're a mess and come with, come to me in your mess. And I'm actually going to make that like clean and white as snow. And you did nothing. You didn't deserve it. And that's what's so beautiful about grace. And so accepting that grace was the most beautiful thing I could have ever had. But it started me in the journey of rebuilding that foundation of who Christ was was, who my father, like heavenly father was, and how is the Holy Spirit going to work in me and redeem this 19 years of a crazy mess? Because when my dad left, he ended up being diagnosed with uh, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. And so it all started making sense of why he was acting the way he was acting. And um, when he left, he also said, I wish you were never born, you ugly bee. And so when he le- when he left, all of a sudden, I, I just think, well, I'm abandoned. I felt abandoned. I felt rejected. I felt like a mistake. And I felt like, man, I'm hideous. So there's, there's no point of me being here, but God, you're the puppet master. So I'll do exactly what you say, and I'll keep on living this life the way you told me to. And so what is so neat is um, God used every single instance in my life, even the evil ones that came at me. So uh, when we think about Paul in scripture, he's like, Hey, I've been shipwrecked. I've been flogged. I've been stoned. You know, I've been imprisoned and all the other things. Those are really big traumas that he suffered. Like he said, he was fleeing for his life, like in danger of his life consistently. Like that's going to cause someone to be paranoid. And what's weird is when I'm reading in scripture, I can fully feel how heavy all those words are because in the same way, if I go through like some of my lists, like, you know, I was running from, for my life from my dad. So I was fleeing from him and very paranoid. I, um, got in an accident and almost broke my neck where I said, was told I would never probably play sports again, run again. Um, I was actually assaulted by a group of guys, um, in the middle of the street, they just beat me up, left me passed out and grabbed my purse in Mexico. Yeah. In Mexico, you know, add another layer to that. Yeah. So I was robbed in the middle of the night, um, in my house, Uh, I had a house fire. I mean, I can keep on going on thing after thing after thing. And what the beautiful thing about it is this. So people can either be bad, be bitter about something or just get better. And so I felt like I'm like, God, like I want to step into this healing with you. And in order to do that, that's an act of obedience. And that's where I think most people miss out on their healing is they feel like it's too scary. They feel like, um, it's going to be too much for them to do it. But I feel like if they were just to say, and they want to do it their own way. I wanted to heal my own way. I'm like, I'm going to go to counseling. This is going to be the easy way. I'm not going to have to relive all this stuff. And then the counselor's like, actually, you're going to have to relive all this stuff and you're going to have to feel it. You're going to have to grieve it. You're going to have to process it. I'm like, okay. So going through all of that, I took Jesus' hand. He led me to the water and I drank, you know, I drank from that water that he was going to give me. And those are the action steps that I would encourage people to do, because a lot of times people don't want to do that. They want to do it themselves. And so 
going through that healing, God used every single one of those aspects that happened to me, every single one of those pieces of trauma for my good. But Davey and I talk a lot about this. There's little T trauma and there's big T trauma. When Davey Davey went through his, that was big T trauma. So it's basically going to the ER and his leg is cut off. And so he's he's surpassing every single person in the waiting room. And they're like, get him back. They're getting back there. All the doctors, all the nurses are back there. They're saying, wow, this is bad, bad trauma. So he feels validated. He's like, oh, like I felt like this inside was, this was bad trauma, but now everyone's telling me this is bad trauma. So he's going to process it. He's going to be aware of it. He's going to grieve it. He's going to have all these people around him to help help him through it. Yes. So my trauma in the beginning was like, I got a paper cut in my hand and it felt really bad as a kid, because honestly, as a kid, that's how bad it feels. It feels like death. It feels like your leg got cut off. So I went into the emergency room the first time and they were told, they told me, Hey, you need to sit down and no one validated it. And they actually made me feel pathetic. And when, after five hours later, I get to the back and they say, Hey, actually, uh, here's a fake prescription, put a bandaid on it. You're going to be fine. Well, then I left there and then I got 1,000 more paper cuts on my hand because that's how little T trauma is when you're a child, when you're having abusive father. You get so much trauma and you say, well, none of this is a big deal and no one thinks it's a big deal. So why am I so pathetic thinking it's this big? And so you don't do anything about it until it gets to the point where your hand's infected and you have to get it chopped off because you have sepsis and it's going throughout your whole body. And 50% of people with sepsis actually pass away. And so that is the point with little T trauma that so many people don't think their trauma is that big of a deal. They don't grieve it processly, uh, properly. They don't process it the right way either. And so they don't step into healing. Right. The yeah. way that you describe that, just I, I just feel that so much, um, just kind of the journey that we've been on, you know, and over the last 15 years and seeing that play out so many times in people's, they, they move on from their trauma, big T or little T, either because it hasn't been validated or they haven't submitted it to the Lord. And then they don't understand why they're repeating the same mistakes over and over again is because they have never found that healing. Yeah. 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 So even when we, and we can share the story here in a second about how we got together, but you know, when we started first having conversations, she would tell me about things in her past and she would just kind of gloss over it. Like it was no big deal. You know, this thing happened to me, this thing, this thing. And I'm like, wait, hold on a second. Uh, can we let that sit for a second? Because that's a huge deal. Like either you have really healed well from this or you, you really are just kind of sweeping it under the rug. And I think there were a lot of things that she felt validated for the first time, you know, saying, mm-hmm. oh, wow, this is a big deal. This yeah. is something to explore. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear that and my, my heart and mind go all over the place, which this may like either be creepy or endearing, but part of me is like as a mom and as a pastor, I just like want to scoop you up and just hold your face and say you are beautiful and amazing and you are all those things. But I think about both of your stories. I, our, our counselor told us years ago, you can't heal a wound you don't give a name to. Mm-hmm. And so anytime people put words to wounds, it just has a powerful impact for you to quantify the, the big trauma in the small trauma. And Davey, you just said it. it. You finally told her that her paper cut had validity and that let, let's talk about it. When I think about both of your stories, I always what keeps coming to mind is the book of Job, mm-hmm. right? In, in the book of Job, like he didn't do anything wrong. And then he just paid hell for everything yeah. and he loses everything. Yeah. But everybody talks about the second half of Job's life 
But the second half of Job's life, like he, that was a brand new beginning. Like he didn't get his wife back. He didn't right. get his children back. And so, but there was beauty in the second half. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us how that transition ha- happened for both of you. And in the second half, this redemption that is happening with two unlikely stories, creating this most beautiful tapestry of really displaying to the entire world that even in the pain, nothing is wasted. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing I didn't share is before I met Davey, I was married and we it ended, and it ended in divorce. And so through that divorce, God took me through a lot of healing and redemption and restoration. And it got to the point where I was um, single living with my child in my in an apartment and just feeling like so just betrayed and angry and kind of alone because I've never lived by myself. I always had roommates in college, all my girlfriends, and then you're married. So you have a you know built-in roommate and then you're by yourself and you put your kid down to sleep at eight o'clock and you're by yourself and you're sitting there in the quiet and it's deafening. Um, and you have to be faced with all your demons and all your trauma. And so that process was a long process. And one of the things that God told me then was, Hey, Christy, like, I love you. I'm still pursuing you. And, and I was so, so I was like, okay, well, what does that look like for me? Because I feel like I, for, I was like forsaking my first love. Mm-hmm. And so I read in scripture and it said, what is the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And so I said, okay, Lord, how am I going to do that? So I just started every time I would put her down to sleep, I wouldn't be distracted by making a phone call or getting on TV or my phone or anything like that. I just started getting in the word like crazy and just journaling like crazy. And I remember just saying, Lord, it's just going to be me and you. And I'm good with that. And I, I feel like you're my husband right now and you're restoring so many areas. And then when Davey came along, it was so hard. It took about six months of us just kind of being around each other, him like trying to get around me as well. And having like different people asking like, Hey, we're going out in this group thing. You want to come? And Davey so happened to be there. And I'm like, Oh, I'm good. Well, <laughs> so the, the, the short story is, and, and, and I say that as a pastor, um, <laughs> <laughs> Is that we, she began, we, we went to the same CrossFit gym. That's the first time we encountered each other. Um, and then there were several folks from that CrossFit gym who were attending the church that I was pastoring at the time. So she came and visited and then decided, I, I really like this church and continued to visit. So I kept seeing her walk in and out. Um, and it was, it was really the first time I noticed someone other than Amanda and was kind of intrigued by her. One, because she walked through our atrium with so much poise and grace and just like really well put together, clearly had some kind of a story, some kind of a past because she never walked in with anybody else other than her daughter. And I'm going, she, all right, single mom, what's, what's going on here? And then she was also serving in our inner city ministry that was for Indy, which was what we referenced earlier, right? And she's getting her, you know, on Saturdays, getting her hands dirty, like, you know, cleaning out gutters and doing all this stuff for the, for the inner city um, neighborhood we were, we were serving. And so I'm like, what in the world is up with this girl? There's something intriguing about her. So I corner her very pastorally mm-hmm. in the CrossFit gym one night. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I say, uh, hey, I don't know your story. You've been coming to my church for a little while. What's your story? And so she proceeds to tell me all the ugly of her story, trying to kind of drive me away. She didn't want to have anything to do with me. And uh, at least in that in that way. Um, and, and all I picked up on her story is that she spent some time overseas doing missions work. And so I put two and two together. I'm like, Oh, so that's why you're serving in our inner city ministry. She said, well, actually, um, it's also my stepdad and my mom live in that neighborhood. And I'm like, wait a minute by choice. That's a very dangerous neighborhood. 
yeah, they, they feel like that's kind of like their ministry. And I said, well, this is why we're doing this. It's because of Amanda's story. We want to intercept kids and teenagers before they step into that. And she goes, yeah, I'm very familiar with your story, probably more than what you would like to know. And I was like, wait, what? And she said, uh, well, I'm my, my stepdad is one of the chaplains for Marion County Prison. And he has been having regular conversations with the guys who are on trial for killing Amanda. He's been sharing the gospel with them. Wow. So it's in that moment that I knew God was up to something, right? It actually happened to be, and I know you guys, are, you know, you're in the publishing world, so you know what this is like, but it happened to be the week that I was turning in the manuscript to my book, Nothing is Wasted. So I was asking God, God, would you show me the, the God story? Like, what are you doing in my story right now? And, and, and so in those questions, boom, we have this conversation. And, and, I, and I realized, like, there's this girl that I'm intrigued by who is so closely connected to my story as well. Like, I think God is setting up some kind of partnership here, some kind of like a beautiful redemptive thing that's happening. And that's now that, you know, we, we kind of see that, that we're like puzzle pieces. Like we feel like our life was broken pieces, mm -hmm. but then you kind of put them all out on the table together and you realize, wait, these aren't broken pieces. These are puzzle pieces and they fit together really beautifully. This is nuts. And, and God's used her to heal me in tremendous ways, kind of put the exclamation point on healing for me and vice versa. That is so cool. When we meet with couples who are, you know, doing um, marriage counseling, premarital counseling, that's something that I tell them that, you know, we have these pieces of the puzzles of our life and you're not creating the marriage of your parents, you're creating your own. And mm -hmm. so oftentimes we try to put other people's pieces in our life story when they weren't meant to be there. So I just love that, that imagery of God putting that together. There's this passage of scripture that Trish shares uh, when we speak at different churches, and it's out of Hebrews chapter 12, and it says, um, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening, it's painful, um, but afterwards there'll be a quiet harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands, stand firm on your shaky legs, mark out a straight path for your feet, and then those who follow you will not be weary, but they will be strong. Wow. And it's like you guys had to go through that. It wasn't necessarily God's discipline, it, but it was a dis, it was a discipline. Right. right? It, anytime you experience hardship, tragedy, there's a discipline aspect to that. Right. It's a sifting of some sort that you God can use. Right. But then what I what I see out of your life and your ministry and your marriage now is it's a quiet harvest of right living, mm. right? And so now you have these people these people that are following you, these guides that are following you that are trained to help other people process their, their pain. Right. That is an exponential factor of your life and ministry. Now it's not just you guys, you know, I understand what that means, what that feels like to go, well, I'm the, I'm the guy who talks about pain. You know, we're the couple that like helps people in their pain. And while there's an element at which, you know, we want to, embrace that and steward that and say, okay, God, you've given us this, this platform for a reason. And it's to help people. It's not to terminate on ourselves. We want this to be about so much more than just the Blackburn story. This is about helping other people on their story. But at the same time, it can grow weary, always being the ones talking about pain and also carrying other people's pain all the time, yeah. Yeah. you know? And, uh, um, and so it's like, you're trying to hold it, 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 I think we I think we mistake a lot 
uh, we, we make mistakes a lot when we try to go either or when we try to do a but in the middle of things or, you know, but like life is a lot about tensions and holding things in tension and saying uh, yes. And, you know, and so while we do, that is something that we are very accustomed to and we're consistently talking about pain. We're also making sure that we're trying to grow as people as well as individuals, as followers of Jesus, as a married couple, you know? And so as we grow, we're hoping that the overflow of that imparts other things that maybe aren't just about pain to other people around us as well. And I think that's really ministry. You know, a lot of people try to think that ministry is all about having some kind of an organization or platform or, you know, some kind of level of influence before you can ever, everybody's got a ministry. Every follower of Jesus has a ministry, Yeah, right? And that ministry, all it is, is just the overflow of what God's doing in you. So if God's still wrestling, you know, he's, he's, he's still, um, you still have this wrestling of pain inside of you and you're, you're still working through some of that stuff. The overflow of that's going to be, you're going to be talking about pain. But if he's talking about wrestling through some other things inside of your spirit, then just let that be the overflow and you never know what happens, you know? And that's kind of where, at least for me, that I, I feel like I've settled on. Because there are other podcasts. I'd love to have other podcasts <laughs> talk about other topics, right? Yeah. And one day, maybe maybe that'll be the case. Maybe the Lord will open up that door of opportunity. But um, for now, I'm just trying to grow as a person. and We're trying to grow as a couple so that maybe we have something to impart to other people, you know, that's beyond true. their pain journey. I think the question is a great question too, just because when we do go and speak, we speak about um, like Amanda's story Mm -hmm. and then Davey's story with that. And then a little bit of like our story. Mm -hmm. And so there's usually a line that comes in afterwards. And as pastors, you know, sometimes that line could be kind of funny responses from people. We all know that. And one of the responses I get, they're like, Hey, I have a question. And it's usually not a question. It's actually just a statement. And it'll be like, man, you're overlooked by Amanda. Or, overshadowed yeah overlooked or overshadowed or and those are the the comments and it's like or how does it feel to be overshadowed or overlooked and i think that's the misconcept of a lot of people even who are blending there's this like yeah. threatening factor of the other person either it's the late wife or the ex-wife or the ex-husband or late husband and what i tell people is this of like i don't know what it is because my foundation was not built where i have this great confidence out of nowhere I think it's all the people who have been praying for us and God's grace has just never made me feel threatened. Mm -hmm. And what I tell people too, is this, that this isn't about Amanda. It's not about Davey and it's not about me. This is about Jesus and his story and how he's the redeemer and he's the healer. And so if, if I make it about me, then we've lost everything. And so that's a huge thing when it comes to blending too, like, Davey has always been like, I can't believe you let me talk so much about Amanda. And I think the biggest thing about that is his whole life is like a book. And so if I'm like, hey, a third of this book, Amanda was a part of you, like close those chapters off. I don't want to know a single thing about it because this hurts me. Then I wouldn't understand who my husband is because she's made him in a way like they, you know, they were one flesh too at one point. So she's developed him into the man he is today. And I want to know that story and I want to know her. And also her son is my son. So we get to join in having the same son. And I want to be able to share about his mom to him too, because he has two moms. And so those who are blending, I feel like there's always going to be a battle or a war that you're going to have to fight when you have those insecurities. And we pray that it's just the battle. And these are normal feelings. So don't feel guilty. You're going to be triggered by certain things. So don't feel guilty. But when it's a war, I think that's when you need to get some help, some marriage counseling or something, or even help for yourself to understand where are these rooted? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a ministry in and of itself. There's so many 
um, couples that feel isolated for just being blended, like just mm-hmm. because of that. So I appreciate, you know, that willingness to. And you put like, social media onto that, you know what I mean? It's like the comparison that, that people feel in their, in their relationships these days is just off the charts. One of the things that we have learned language-wise that has helped us is that we say we go first to help you go second. That's great. We don't have all the bows yet, and we may never have them, and that's okay. There's parts of our story that will never be redeemed, but that's our ministry is that we go first, not just with the pain, but also in the beauty, and the beauty that you guys are creating is just, it's pretty incredible. Um, Yeah. I have such a greater appreciation for you and just for the faith journey that God has led you on. And just thank you guys so much for being on the front lines. Thank you. Stand in the gap, you know, for so many people who are experiencing abuse and brokenness and neglect and tragedy and loss. And and you guys are out there, you know, waving the the flag going, Hey, we're here to help. You know, it's like, um, just, you know, first into the battle to go rescue people. And I just appreciate that about you guys. Thanks for being with us today. I hope that you were as blessed by that conversation as we were. There were times I was just speechless at all that God has done in Davy and Christie's life to transform their pain into purpose. And if you're looking for purpose in a painful situation, I can't encourage you enough to go to nothingiswasted.com and just check out some of the resources that Davy and Christy have created to help you transform your pain into God's purpose for your life. Guys, we want to encourage you uh, to be a part of the Refinus Weekend Experience. It's a weekend to transform your heart and the heart of your marriage, July 7th through the 9th. You can go to refineus.org slash weekend for more information. And don't forget to enter that early bird registration code, which is early bird. And see you next time for episode 19 of the Let's Get Real podcast with Justin and Trisha Davis. Have a great week.